This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, this is Andrew Harrison from the Doomsday Watch Backroom team. We have a special event to announce. Doomsday Watch's first live Zoom is happening on Tuesday the 26th of April at 7pm. In an exclusive stream for Patreon backers, Arthur will be welcoming back our guest Dr Alex Clarkson to talk about what Russia's war on Ukraine has done to global stability, what might come next and much more. Plus we'll have time for your questions too. Search Patreon Doomsday Watch, sign up and you'll get free access to this special event. We hope to see you there, now your regularly scheduled podcast. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. In this series of war bulletins, we've been exploring how some of the key countries in the world relate and respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've talked about India, we've talked about China, but we've yet to talk about France, arguably Europe's number one military power and certainly inside the European Union. It is also a country going through a complex general election right at this moment. And so it's a crucial time to understand France's perspective on this conflict. To help us do that, I'm delighted that we've got Stéphanie Pézard with us. She's a senior researcher at the Rand Corporation in Washington, D.C., and an expert on France's political military stance. Stéphanie, welcome. Thank you, Arthur. Last year, Stéphanie, you, uh, you produced a report which now seems laden with amazing foresight. Uh, It was entitled A Strong Ally Stretched Thin, and it analysed what the situation for France would be in the event of a major conflict in Europe. So now, uh, in a rather sad way, one of the major parts of your report has come true. Uh, So perhaps you could briefly explain to the listeners uh, what your findings were in that report and then how you feel about that now that there is a war here in Europe. Certainly. So this report was really um, sort of a broad assessment of French military capabilities uh, in the scenario of a a large-scale conventional conflict. Obviously, you know, we thought about Russia, but 
mostly because it's most obvious competitor in Europe. Uh, we were not uh, predicting necessarily that, that something like this would happen, yeah. especially not so soon. Um, and it was also a way to sort of look at the changes that different European militaries have undergone over the past, past few years, which is moving a little bit from a sort of more expeditionary type of warfare to um, refocusing on um, the type of capabilities you need for larger conventional warfare, um, again, potentially potentially in Europe. Uh, so France, France has been doing that, focusing more on uh, on the concept of um, going back to high intensity, uh, but we've seen that in, in other countries as well. And um, the idea was also, in the case of France, I, I think it, it also has to be clear that any involvement in that type of conflict would be uh, as part of a coalition. I, I don't think anyone in France expects to go at it alone. So, so that's also part of the sort of broader context in which uh, these capabilities are being developed. Yeah. Now, of course, um, from a very Anglo-centric perspective, and I hasten to add that our listeners uh, are not like that. We have a very uh, diverse and, and, and globally minded listeners. But someone from an Anglo-centric perspective uh, might think back to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And of course, France was opposed to that invasion, did not participate. But in more recent times, France has, of course, been very active particularly in expeditionary warfare, both in the Sahel region of Africa, but also it was very active in the campaign against ISIS in Iraq and, and in parts of Syria. So how does that affect the perspective of France when it's now looking at a more conventional uh, military situation in Central and Eastern Europe? I think to be fair to France, they've always been very careful to keep the type of capabilities that would enable them to cover the entire spectrum of conflict. So even though they've been you know, more active in Mali, in the Central African Republic, they've, they've always maintained also sort of high-end capabilities, partly because they're still a nuclear power, which has some you know, important requirements in terms of their air capabilities, for instance. And France has always wanted to make sure that it had some degree of, I mean, we all know about strategic autonomy at the European level, but some degree of uh, national autonomy where it wanted to be able to do any kind of operation. Again, in some cases, it would likely be in a coalition uh, to respond to uh, French interests anywhere in the world. Um, again, to be able to handle the sort of small walls that have become more prominent, but also keeping the notion that a large-scale conventional conflict was possible. The fact that the potential adversaries in that case are nuclear nations, that adds a sort of extra layer to it. Um, there's, a, there's, there's still a notion that nuclear deterrence uh, should contain risks of major conflict between, well, nuclear powers. Um, and and this is this is something that I think is still holding today. But of course, when we talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine at this stage, we're not talking about the direct involvement of the military of any NATO country. We're talking about the ways in which NATO countries can support uh, the Ukrainians. Here in Britain, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, of course, has made much of his claim to have led the field in terms of offering. Uh, lethal support to the Ukrainian armed forces. 
The picture in France seems a little different. At one point, a senior French um, uh, military figure, I think, said that, that France was not going to announce what support it had given. It was going to keep that classified. But I'm not sure if that's been maintained. And then there's also been, if I'm right, the resignation of the head of France's military intelligence, uh, perhaps in response to their failure to anticipate Russia's actions in invading Ukraine. So from a French perspective, in terms of France's position towards its support of uh, the Ukrainians militarily and more broadly, how would you characterize France at this stage? So I think France's willingness to acknowledge its uh, sending of weapons to Ukraine has really evolved over time. And, uh, and now they're being much more transparent about what they're sending to Ukraine and how much they are sending to Ukraine, which, again, wasn't the case a, a few weeks ago. And now France has been um, basically providing the, not you know, obviously not the exact list, but the broad categories that they've been sending to Ukraine. Is there a political element to this? Uh, obviously, we're literally between the two rounds of the French presidential election. President Macron is facing Marine Le Pen, whose um, past relations with Russia are, are well known. Uh, is there a degree to which Macron knows that some people who might be inclined to vote for Le Pen perhaps are less happy about France actively supporting one of Russia's foes? Or, or is that overthinking it? Is, is that not an issue? Um, it's a good question. I mean, very frankly, I, I think the French election, kind of like the US election and <laughs> most major elections in the world are played mostly on internal issues, Yeah, not so much on foreign policy issues. Um, so, you know, Marine Le Pen has had a pretty high number of voters voting for her at the, in the first round. Uh, I very much doubt that a lot of these people who voted for Marine Le Pen factored in the, the Russia element in their decision when they cast their vote. So I would really not think that this is playing a major role. There are just so many different other issues, internal issues, you know, just from employment to inflation to uh, debates around immigration that really push people toward toward one candidate versus another. Again, I, I don't think you would find in France the same percentage of of people being um, having a more pro Russia stance. Uh, that that wouldn't match the the numbers that uh, Marine Le Pen came up with in the in the first round. Right, but I suppose there is a question about France's uh, strategic positioning, and of course. You mentioned the phrase strategic autonomy. France, of course, is the only other nuclear armed power along with Britain uh, in Europe. Historically, France's relations with NATO have had an, a higher element of independence. And then there is the role of Emmanuel Macron as a diplomatic envoy with President Putin. So some commentators here in the UK, and not necessarily ones that I agree with, have sought to portray France as somehow trying to find a middle way between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be accurate or fair. But is there a slightly different stance here, which is not the same stance that we see in the US and UK on this conflict at the strategic level? I would. I really wouldn't call it a, a middle way, but I think... Um... It's always been important for France to have its own diplomatic voice um, rather than 
necessarily seeing itself as having to trail behind the initiatives of others. Uh, so it really doesn't surprise me that uh, President Macron has his own diplomatic initiative. I mean, it's been it's been sometimes successful, as in uh, the case of Nicolas Sarkozy's diplomatic uh, efforts with Russia uh, during the Georgia crisis in 2008, yep. for instance. Uh, so th- this seems to be, for me, to be more in that line of, of uh, you know, trying not necessarily a different avenue, but a, a separate one. Give diplomacy as, as much of a chance as, as you can. We've seen how incredibly, you know, personal diplomacy is and how slightly different approaches can, can lead to uh, different outcomes. So it doesn't seem to me surprising that, that France would, would try its own, uh, its own approach even though I think that France is very much aligned, and we've seen that with sanctions, for instance, with sanctions, with delivery of weapons, is very much in line with all of its allies and partners when it comes to the position toward toward Russia. Yeah. You mentioned there the importance of personal relations and, and uh, in diplomacy, and, and I 100% agree with you, particularly speaking as a former diplomat. And of course, one personal relationship that seems to be quite difficult is the relationship between uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Macron. It certainly doesn't appear to have been helped by the AUKUS agreement. This is the Australia-UK-US agreement relating to submarines. But of course, Boris Johnson's approach towards the Brexit issue, again, may not have endeared himself um, to, to the French political class. And it may just be that at a personal level, Macron and Johnson just are not on the same wavelength. Um, Given that case, but also given the fact that uh, for a long time, France and the UK, their militaries have worked very closely together. Is this a serious obstacle to Europe's two um, great military powers working together? Or is this just a, a passing issue relating to a current generation of politicians? I think at the core, France and the UK are, are still very close. Um, as, as you mentioned, their, their militaries have a long history of working together. Um, this is still happening. They are close allies. I don't see any reason why this should be um, compromised by potentially less positive, again, personal relationship. I, I really don't think that would really factor in. Um, now, it's true that AUKUS has been... Um, has really been uh, perceived by the French as a as a blow against their Indo-Pacific policy, um, their own relationship with Australia, and this is one that might take a little time to dissipate. That really was perceived as quite a shock for France. The French ambassador to the U.S. was recalled to Paris mm. uh, for a few days. I mean, these are not light steps, yeah. uh, and that was really indicative of the deep shock that the French. Uh, felt at this announcement, uh, not just the initiative, but the way it was announced and so on. Um, so I can see that as taking a little time to dissipate, but again, not threatening a relationship that is extremely solid at its core. So I suppose then we should also talk about NATO. Many people have taken President Macron's remarks about NATO and, and particularly the term brain death, uh, perhaps taken it out of context, perhaps it's been misunderstood. What do you understand he was meaning in that discussion? 
And what does that tell us about France's position within NATO? A lot has been said about about that comment, and I I wouldn't pretend to be in President Macron's head and and tell you exactly what he was thinking at the time and why he used these specific words. I think you've got to understand this sort of in the broader context of maybe Macron's efforts to build European strategic autonomy, so to build some degree of uh, military capabilities and military initiatives at at the level of Europe rather than put everything on, on NATO, but have, have a, a higher complementarity between what NATO and what the EU can do. And um, and this European strategic autonomy has really been a, a very strong focus of Macron uh, with various initiatives that have been successful, like PESCO or the European Defence Fund. Um, and and I think that... that um, that, that comment on NATO should be understood uh, against that background of a, a better balance between what NATO can do and what the Europeans within the EU can do also at their level and make sure there's complementarity and not necessary exclusivity on, on NATO. And so taking that point, of course, um, Europe's involvement in defence and security is a long debate and one that when the UK was a member of the EU, the UK often played a spoiling role uh, trying to prevent this from happening. Now, of course, the UK has left. Maybe that makes it easier for this discussion to develop. But what is it that the EU will seek to do in this space, which is not covered by NATO? What is the functional role of the EU in this context? I think I think it is still very much being debated on whether the EU should be focusing on its neighborhood, whether it should have sort of, you know, more global approach, whether it should focus more on territorial defense, even though that's what NATO seems to be best fit for. To some extent, there's also the notion of simplifying the the European defense industry by having fewer models, for instance, or or, or fewer types of of certain type of of armament, improving interoperability within Europeans, um, sort of simplifying also how Europeans can engage in peace protection or it could be some uh, military operations together, developing a, a common culture of how they do military operations. Uh, That's sort of a a way of uh, improving to some extent the unity of Europe. And I think that's one of the key reasons why it's been so important for France and for for Macron. This is really part of the European building effort um, that started in, in the 50s. Yeah. And of course, at the heart of this larger situation that we're seeing with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's possible to argue, perhaps, that Russia perceived the West in broad terms, when I, and I mean both NATO and the EU and its allies, as divided, as unfocused. Perhaps President Putin thought uh, that the reaction wouldn't be as strong and as unified as it turned out to be. And therefore, of course, his invasion of Ukraine has been a unifying moment for Western countries. But in some ways, some of these big questions do remain unresolved. We've just talked a bit about what the EU's defence ambitions might be. Uh, We've talked about uh, the UK and France's relationship. But there's also the question of how the UK interacts with the EU 
at a defence level? What is the appropriate way uh, for the UK to to sort of dock in with that? What, what's your view on that from a from a French perspective? I would fully agree that the the UK will be involved. Um, I don't think the idea has been to keep the keep the UK out. And the question really now is is defining defining the modalities, which is going to depend on what the UK wants and also what the Europeans can can offer. Um, but frankly, this is this is really at a very initial stage. The other country which we have to talk about and we haven't mentioned yet is Germany. You you mentioned strategic autonomy, and in one very important way, France has a very special strategic autonomy, uh, which is that it, it does not rely on energy supplies from uh, Russia. Of course, France uh, has a very strong nuclear power sector, uh, whereas, as we all know, Germany is heavily reliant on Russian energy supplies and its industry has been heavily reliant on export into the Russian market. But Germany itself is seeking to revolutionize its own, both its own energy system, but also its approach to defense, its defense spending. What do you think uh, France would seek for Germany to do? Because it is possible that then there becomes a type of rivalry between France and Germany, not, not in the historic sense, but in a modern sense of two similarly sized nations, both of them eventually having similar sized militaries. Does that present a possible tension between France and Germany? I don't really see tension there. I would I would think that this would be extremely positive for France. France has always, it's been the, the Franco-German couple that has really um, been a, an engine for building of the European enterprise, really. Yeah. Any sort of disconnect between France and Germany in terms of, you know, external priorities or willingness to spend on on the military or other things, these have always been more problematic for France and for that European effort. So having France and Germany on the same page in that regard, I don't see how that could not be positive for what each of them is, is trying to achieve. But is there possibly uh, within Germany, it seems, more of a political constituency which would like to find some kind of accommodation uh, with Russia, whereas France is not in that space. So is, is, is there a challenge for France for sort of keeping Germany on the tracks of supporting Ukraine, keeping pressure on Russia and on Putin? Well, I think in that regard, the, the current debate about whether to extend sanctions to um, Russian gas and oil is re- really going to tell us whether main lines of fracture are and how uh, durable they are. Even if, if the Europeans could agree on just oil, which most European countries are not as dependent on as with gas, yeah. and that's not that wouldn't be just Germany. I mean, um, Bulgaria and, and, and uh, Hungary have uh, also been reticent there. Um, I think that would really show you sort of what are the current lines of disagreement can refracture European unity or, or whether, you know, with some, some discussion and with what's coming out of Ukraine, um, they, they can be raised and, and, and you can get this collective action that Europe has been trying to put together. Um, so I, I, I think that that sanctions debate and where it goes and whether it can actually be decided upon and implemented, that will be a big test. Uh, for the EU. Yeah. Well, of course, 
We're right between the first and the second rounds of France's presidential election. The opinion polls seem to point to uh, President Macron uh, winning the second round, but some polls have put Marine Le Pen within touching distance. It is not impossible that she could win. If she becomes president, uh, how different will this discussion become? That's a great question. Um... <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, but we have to ask. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's difficult to say, especially because the legislative elections could provide a, a different majority from who would win the presidential elections. And and if you find yourself, that's really a French specificity, but you could find yourself in a situation where you have a, a president from one party and a prime minister from a different party. Right. And that's happened before. And it's I would not call it paralyzing, um, but it it very much limits what the president can do. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone can get any picture of what France might look like with the Marine Le Pen presidency until you've seen also the results of the legislative election. Because, again, that could be a huge constraint to the point of completely changing any objective that any of the presidential candidates has right now for what this, uh, the next five years would look like. Right. Well, that, that may be some encouragement to those who fear a Le Pen presidency. But uh, I think it is true to say that she is quite sceptical of NATO. And as we've already mentioned, you know, has in the past at least expressed admiration for President Putin. So it seems reasonable to believe that she would at least try to change France's perspective. Is that a fair, fair analysis? Uh, you're right, both on, on NATO and uh, the attitude toward Russia. Now, how would that translate in practice? That's a really different issue. Would she, would she really pull out of NATO? Uh, would she really have a more pro-Russian stance uh, after we see the massacres in Bolsha and other places? That is really, really hard to say. So I think at this point, we can really see what the speeches are and what the program is, but how it would be implemented. I think that's uh, really, really far-fetched again, because these are campaign themes. They are not necessarily governing themes. Um, so it's it's possible, but it's not, I wouldn't call it a sure thing. Yeah. Well, just on the other side of this, in the event of a Macron victory, is there a degree to which he, with his second term, his legacy in place, would he substantially change his approach to this conflict? Would he perhaps be uh, more forceful in his support for Ukraine? Or, or do you think anything would change in, in that more likely outcome? I don't really see that happening. He's definitely calling for change now and claiming that he will change some things in his next five years if he if he is elected. But that's more as a result of his performance during the first round of the election, where he found himself fairly close to Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, extreme right in the first case and, and extreme left in the in the other case. Um, so he's he's now sort of course-correcting on, on some internal issues and domestic debates. Again, the war in Ukraine is not a major theme of the, French, of the, of the campaign for the French elections. Um, and there's not been any particular pushback from the French population on the policy that's been adopted so far. So I don't really see any reason for Macron to change course. So my final question, we've talked about the implications for the conflict in Ukraine. But perhaps most importantly, is at the continental level. So uh, what does it mean for Europe 
uh, if the election goes one way or another in France? Well, I, I think what, what's really at stake here is European unity in a way and um, the feeling from each European nation that they are part of a, of a larger whole that does not threaten their identities or their right to sovereignty. That's really something that uh, President Macron has been trying to push, that, that European effort that uh, would clearly not be pushed as hard by his competitor. Whether, whether that would potentially undermine the, the European effort is a different question, but that would be a setback for the type of initiatives and effort uh, that European leaders have been pushing forward for the past, frankly, the past decades toward creating a, a stronger European unity. Stephanie Pézard, thank you very much for helping us to understand the complexities of French politics and France's military perspective. Uh, And thank you for joining us on Doomsday Watch. Thank you, Arthur. It was a pleasure. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.